How do you get this thing up? Hey, if you can't hear me, do something dramatic because I can't see you. So <laughs> it's a fair deal, isn't it? Um, I don't quite have the freedom that Kimberly has to wander around the stage. I'm kind of tied to these 16 font point notes here, but that's okay. It, um, I really do count it a huge privilege to be on SCUM staff. Really do. Um, if you ask me, you know, what my job title was, I'd be like, you got to be kidding. Ha ha. Sheepdog. You know, just kind of scurrying around, nipping at people's heels, making sure. I really, this does kind of, the sermon does kind of fit in with my love and my interest on staff because I love to see people living up to their potential. And what I find happens a lot of time at staff is, or at SCUM is, Either people are really hesitant, I couldn't possibly, I, oh, I just couldn't do that. Yeah, you can. You can. Let's figure it out. Let's, let's get the steps in order. Let's figure it out and get you going on this. Or other people, I mean, they're, they're ready to take over the world and they have no idea what the steps are along the way. And they can burn out and fizzle out in disappointment. So um, this, this passage tonight, which is about the correct use of power and ambition, yeah, it does, it does kind of fit in with what I'm really passionate about. But I want to start out, I still can't see these stupid things. Start out, um, recent newspaper article, maybe you saw it, maybe you haven't. Headline, 10 million killed annually by stepping out of comfort zones. A new report published this week by the Department of Health and Human Services revealed that more than 10 million Americans are violently killed each year when attempting to break from their regular everyday routines and try something new. We found that getting out of your comfort zone and facing your fears results in premature death 78% of the times, the researchers announced. People always ask themselves, what's the worst that can happen? We found that the worst that can happen is anything from a poisonous snake bite to falling out of a hot air balloon. The report found the safest individuals were those who surrendered to the soul-crushing monotony of habit and then convinced themselves that they had things pretty good. And uh, shout out to Lori Ventola for pointing that out to me from that illustrious source of news and information, The Onion. So, well done, Lori. But there is something to it. Yeah, I mean, we like comfort. We all like comfort. We like pleasure. We like beauty. And I think God loves the creativity of his own creation so that we can love the diversity of everything he's made. But have you noticed, we have this tendency to turn right around and abuse the comfort and the beauty that's available to us. And um, we, we can even construct communities. I'm not going to mention any in particular. We can construct communities, and they evolve toward our own comfort rather than their original intention of mission, maybe. We can, over time, centuries, millennium, religious systems can evolve so that they're comfortable in the culture that they're in. You know, we can see that where the church is compromised with culture here in America. And maybe a little harder step to see maybe that we've done it at scum. But this was the same problem in Jesus' time. Judaism over the centuries, because of their ups and their downs and the pros and the cons of their life, had developed into a system that Jesus just came along and absolutely upended from the moment he began his public ministry to the moment he ascended into heaven with the death and resurrection in between. And it was always really difficult for the disciples, his followers, to sincerely trying, like Kimberly said last week, 
sincerely trying to get it, and yet it was just too different. It fit nothing they had learned, nothing that they had been taught before. This, it just didn't work for them. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight are some of the things Jesus had to say about, I've got to remember to stay in front of this thing, don't I? Some of the things Jesus had to say about um, power and ambition. And again, it, it just didn't make sense to the disciples. We give them credit for trying, and they just didn't always get it. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 32. Is the sound okay? Okay. I know when I go like this, it goes up and down. Anyhow, Mark 32, 10, 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Third time. Told him in chapter 8, told him in chapter 9, third time. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. Those are the Jewish leaders. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. That would be the Roman government, which had, was just oppressing Israel at that point, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. They were astonished. Now, last week when Kimberly talked, she talked about how astonishing it was for them to think that it wasn't automatic that rich people got into the kingdom of God because if you were rich, you were blessed by God and blessed by God got you in the kingdom, right? Or they hadn't quite thought that you could get your riches by dishonest means. And they were astonished that you couldn't win salvation. You couldn't please God. And they were astonished when Jesus said, you know, anybody who gives up everything they have on this earth will get a hundred times back with persecutions beside. So they were pretty astonished, trying hard, not always getting it. He didn't soften his message. He wasn't being cryptic. He kind of laid it out pretty clearly. This is what we're going to Jerusalem for. This is going to happen. So some were astonished, some were afraid, and just took off. But the disciples, the disciples, they, they were amazing. And disciple simply means follower. I would think that most of us here tonight having made any commitment to Christ, are followers. We are disciples. They were sometimes thick-headed. They were sometimes greedy. They were sometimes incredibly honest, blunt, questioning, kind, generous, stupid, almost malicious to each other. They were everything you and I are also. But what made them disciples is the characteristic of following No matter what happened, no matter the difficulty, no matter how confusing, they followed. Discipleship kind of has that idea of almost being an apprentice. Now, an apprentice learns by doing. And the fluidity and the complete understanding and the ability to handle the nuances, that comes with practice. Like how many of you would want to go to a surgeon who had only read the textbooks and never practiced, or even just learning to drive. You know how terrifying it is the first time you're out in the car with somebody who's learning to drive? Just because they read the manual doesn't mean they can do it. Time, repetition, commitment, learning from mistakes, that's what gives understanding and expertise, but that's not what you don't have to attain to that level before you are a disciple. A disciple is a follower. 
following after Jesus as, not ruthlessly, what's the word, as intensely as God pursues us to get us into that kind of relationship. So faults and failures and fantastic successes, these were the disciples. Jesus is heading resolutely to Jerusalem. They are scared. I mean, he's told them three times now he is going to be killed. Now, practical question. If a friend asks you to follow them into a situation that is more than likely dangerous or life-threatening, do you not stop and think about this commitment and following? So let's give credit to these guys. They were willing to follow into difficult situations they didn't understand fully. They knew it could get really nasty, but they followed. Their understanding wasn't perfect. I mean, look at this reaction, verse 35. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, two of the apostles, the twelve, came to him. Teacher, they said. We want us to do whatever you ask of us. Really? I mean, if I just ask you for a blanket favor, what do you think? You figure I'm up to something. Do whatever we ask of us. What do you want me to do? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in glory. (laughs) There's a word. I won't use it in the podcast. (laughs) Nerve. They had nerve. (laughs) And they had a really half-baked understanding. The good part is they did understand and they accepted Jesus as Messiah, Savior of Israel. They understood that he was going to reign over all creation. He was the judge, the supreme ruler. That much they got. But what they didn't get was the nature of, of the kingdom that he would have when he entered his glory. So aren't they just like us? We have a decent handle on God and this life of Christianity, and there's always more to understand, always more, always something that comes up and just almost slaps us as a realization that we have constructed our Christianity to offer us comfort rather than to confront the truth sometimes. So a little bit about this kingdom of God and this glory that Jesus was going to enter. It was not an earthly kingdom. That's what they expected. They expected that Jesus would simply overturn the oppressive Roman government, put the Jews in in Israel back in charge, and they would be top dog. So what they were expecting almost was just a substitution of power. And he didn't have that in mind at all. The kingdom of God is a, is a great concept. It has, and it's a little ethereal, but bear with me. It has to do with the reign of God, a worldview, a culture, a mindset, an ethic. It's, it's more than any earthly kingdom and set of rules. The kingdom of God is, it's the complete restoration of the harmonious relationships God intended at creation where systems are all operating justly, where individuals are treating one another with righteousness and holiness and respect. It's the restoration of our social life, our political life, our psychological life. 
it's creation as God intended it. And Christ was very clear, Jesus was very clear when he came that he was inaugurating, starting the kingdom of God in the sense that the church is not the equivalent of the kingdom of God, but we're the ones that get to act it out. We're sort of the floor model. We're the example. We're supposed to be of what this kingdom of God is supposed to function like. So the kingdom of God is here now. We don't have to screw up our emotions in order to get it here. It's here. We have the opportunity now, although it will be perfected in the future when Christ comes again, new heavens and new earth, all that, but we have the opportunity now to live with kingdom values, kingdom mindset, Um, and we have the opportunity to now in the church to be an alternative community that is very different than the communities of the world and the power structures of the world and the way the world operates and the values of the world. We have that opportunity now. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the assurance that this is a reality, the assurance of the future. We know how it's going to end. So we can act toward the kingdom now. The disciples didn't, this was new to them. They didn't get it yet. They were still looking for a throne and a king and an army and, you know, just vanquish the Romans. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Verse 30, what am I up to? You tell me, I can't see my own notes. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? I don't know if it sounded like that when he first said it in Hebrew. They answered, we can. Oh, really? Really? You think? Are you deaf? Are you delusional? Did you not hear what he just said for the third time? Going to Jerusalem, betrayed handed over to the Roman government, whipped, beaten, crucified, died. Oh, really? You can. You can You can drink that cup. You can be baptized with that. What are you, what are you guys thinking? Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And Matthew, when he tells the story in his gospel, says, prepared by my father. So this cup that they're going to drink, it's, it's pretty common vocabulary to them. All through the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath. When God's holiness is violated, God is angry. And Jesus' death is going to be God's anger against the sin of humanity. And to be baptized with his baptism, to be baptized, to be initiated, to declare your allegiance to, to be made a part of. I mean, in a a really bad sense, think of being jumped into a gang. I mean, when you are baptized, you are in. And what he's saying is, oh, yeah, you're going to be baptized into the kingdom. Did you not remember I said it would include persecutions? So when we make this, as one author called it, a total identification and a radical separation into the kingdom, it's into a life of suffering also, like our Lord Jesus himself went through. Yeah, it clashes with the world pretty dang badly. Um, Last time I looked, the world is telling you to look after number one, take care of yourself, go after what's good for you. Last time I looked, a lot of churches are telling you if you're suffering, there's something wrong with you. Well, I'd like, to, you know, I'd like to have a little debate maybe between the church in Sudan or the church in Myanmar and the American church. Suffering is a normal 
part of the Christian life because we are in a kingdom that is upending the values of the world. We are different. If we're not different, we're missing something special from the kingdom. Discipleship, one author said, means commitment to a vision of society radically different than that which controls our public life today. Yeah, discipleship following Jesus will put you at odds with the values of the world. What is the world telling you to do? Do not be surprised if the values of the kingdom are telling you something different. And to me, this whole idea ties in with one of the key points of conversion, coming to Christ, turning 180 and repenting. It's not that I can look at any one of you and say, okay, you got to follow that law first, and you got to fix up that part of your life first. But in coming to Christ to be a follower, are you willing? I mean, I'm getting goosebumps. Are you willing for the rest of your life at any time to have Christ upend what you think your life should be like? Are you willing to have your values challenged, your actions challenged, your attitudes challenged? I can't tell you what that will be. But remember, the disciples are following after Jesus to Jerusalem. They don't understand it all, and yet they are following. That's what a disciple does. A disciple follows and learns the grace and the blessing of the Christian life in the midst of the suffering by experiencing, by doing it, by being an apprentice, by living the Christian life, the Christian life begins to make sense. When the ten heard about this, James and John's little speech with Jesus, they became indignant with James and John, probably because in the last chapter they had all been talking about who was going to be the greatest, and now they were ticked off that James and John got to him first. Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know how power works in the world. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a little bit of vocabulary right in that last sentence there that would have made perfect sense to them from their religious upbringings. As odd as it sounds, the title, Son of Man, they understood to be a sign of Jesus' deity, that he was God. I don't know. Go ask the scholars. I can't figure that out. Why does Son of Man mean he's God? It does. They accepted that. They accept that he's God. They accept that he is a ransom, that he is a payment for a debt, just like we use the word ransom today, a payment for something to win the release of prisoners or to win the release of slaves. Jesus, in his death, paid the penalty that belonged to each of us for our inability to live a life of obedience to God. He paid that debt, and we are the ones that benefit. We are the ones that are ransomed. One of the things we are ransomed from is this grip that the world has on us, this inability to resist the values and the culture around us when it is at odds with God, when it is at odds with the kingdom. We have been ransomed from that. It's done. 
The Holy Spirit is available. We will not in our lifetime perfect ourselves. I'm not saying that. We will continue just like the disciples to have good moments and bad moments. But why would you live toward anything else than the holiness that is available to you and the values of the kingdom in which we live? Why live toward anything less? Why not give it a shot? Even the Son of Man came to serve. One of the remarkable things about Jesus was in his humanity, he was completely submissive to his own father. He said, I can't tell you who's going to sit on my right and my left. That's up to my father to decide. And later when he was about to ascend into heaven and they asked him again, hey, when are you coming back? He said, I don't know. Ask my father. And I'm thinking that if Jesus himself was satisfied to follow without knowing every detail, every last minute bit, how much more we should be willing as mere humans to follow Almighty God, even when it just doesn't make sense, and how much we need each other to support us in those times when it is just easier to walk. It would just be easier to walk because it makes so little sense. But not so with you. You don't rule, you don't have power, you don't claim or grab at glory the way the world does. And I think a lot of us would say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not president. I'm not about to join an army that's going to, you know, take over a country. What does this have to do with me? Well, at the simplest levels, we all have power, we use it, and we abuse it. I will not ask for a show of hands, but um, a sarcastic remark that puts another one in their place, a little bit of passive-aggressive behavior in a relationship, turning on the tears when it works. Women, am I really the only one? Um, I asked, I asked in um, morning church, so what's kind of the male equivalent of the you know, subtle controller relationships? And they said, we're not subtle, we just punch each other. And I said... But, I mean, guys, you can put the pressure on, too. You know, oh, if you loved me. Well, I mean, any of us can. I mean, anybody can turn on the tear. Anybody can manipulate a relationship. That's a power play. Threats, manipulation, power plays, coyness, cheating, passive-aggressive, guilt. Mothers are great at that. Fear. These are all ways of misusing power. Not so with you. That's not the way the kingdom operates. The kingdom operates through servanthood. The kingdom operates through giving power, empowering, not claiming it for yourself. A couple of illustrations. Um, You didn't know I had two daughters. I don't know where you've been. I talk about them all the time. And I joke, but at the same time, I'm very serious. Your mom... You, you sacrifice for your kids. Late night, no money, their schedule, when they need it, things they want, you nurture them, you love them, you discipline them, you talk to them, you give to them, you push them, you protect them, you do all that. And the reward for all of that, they grow up and they leave. What is that about? You just get them trained to be human and they leave. And seriously, when our girls, you know, went off to college and university and one got married and lives in England, 
there's a grief as well as a sense of, I did the right thing. I mean, I could have put the power plays on. You can't move so far away from home. I need you. I, I mean, I could have started even earlier. You're so ugly. No one's ever going to want to marry you. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you. But, you know, there's all sorts of ways to manipulate a relationship. But what I'm telling you is the cost of doing it right is sometimes a loss that you don't get back the way you had it before. Now, this happens in your friendships too, right? You're a friend with someone. They're doing great. You encourage them to apply for that job, and you can do it. You're good. No, don't put yourself. You can, you know, or you know, yeah, go after her. You know, you know, you can. You're okay. You know, this will be a good relationship. So you encourage them, and they do it, and all of a sudden they don't have time for you. They're in another relationship. They got another job. They're moving out of town, and you lose for what you've done right. Take a look at, um, not even my words, better words than mine, Philippians 2, where the Apostle Paul talks. Um, going to flop up there? Woo-hoo. Very deliberately picked this version. I want to read it to you, and I have it written down here. So Here we go. This is Paul talking to the church in Philippi. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships, one another have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Holy cow, if you deliberately took each conversation and started it with that thought in mind, how would Jesus talk to this person right now? What would Jesus do? Anyhow, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Not to the point where he was noticed, not to the point where it began to hurt, not to the point where he was losing out to everybody else in the community, not to the point where he was behind you know, his peers in achievements, to death. Scary stuff. Let me show you a comparison. Now, this is the New International Version. Now we're going to look at what almost every other version that has been translated in English said, because, of course, the Bible's first in Greek. And the other slide is, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Do you see the difference? Not only to yourself, but also others. Not only to you, but others also. My little analogy is, you know, I go out for dinner, I come out, someone's hungry on the street, and I flip them a quarter. Go back to the other, the TNIV. Translation is an important thing. Ask my husband about it. Verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. A bit more intense. And I will let you take it up with Craig if you want to know how the Greek is translated and why the word only really isn't there. Um, but what a dramatic difference it makes in attitude, whether I come out of the restaurant and flip a quarter to the guy, whether I cut my meal in half and give half, or whether I say, here, you go eat. I'll be okay. Whose interest am I looking to first? My own 
or others. And there is no guarantee, I'm sorry to tell you, no guarantee this side of heaven that you will get your reward here and now. And when the reward does come, like in all seriousness, you know, like with raising kids and then they go off, um, I have to realize that the reward is there, but it's not a self-serving reward. Empowering people in their relationships with God or in their success in life gives me the reward of seeing them happy and successful. And really, that's what we should be striving for in our sense of looking at others first rather than ourselves. So does this mean we can never take care of ourselves? We can never do anything for ourselves? No, there is a huge difference between self-care and self-indulgence, however. If you really are in it for others, you will care for yourself so that you are physically, mentally, emotionally able to have concern for others, that you're not burnt out. Well, it, does looking does looking unto others mean that I should never have any ambition? And again, the answer is no. The Bible never condemns ambition, but it has a lot of things to say about selfish ambition. Just for the fun of it, look at these. Again, the Apostle Paul, I mean, this guy, it's an interesting balance. It's just some random verses out of Romans 15. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles and through the power of the Spirit. Um, you know, I could have read that with a different intonation, but you see, it, it's there's a balance there. He was really pretty intense and pretty proud of the accomplishments that were accomplished by God through him for the sake of others. Around here, I'll be real honest, I think a lot of us are so hesitant to think of others. We hide behind a piety that says, oh, I couldn't possibly finish school, get a job, stay in a relationship, help you out, be a leader. And it's a, it's a false piety that says, I cannot do what God is offering me, gifts and ability and help and encouragement through the body, through my own study, through my own effort to do for him and for others. So do not shortchange yourself on your potential of what you can do for the body of Christ. So that doesn't mean that you have to be a full-time minister. I mean, thank God for businessmen who make a lot of money and donate generously. You know, or, or others, you know, who use professional skills. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, you have to be a full-time Christian professional. But do not be afraid to be ambitious because the Spirit of God will show you how to use what he's put in your heart for personal success in a way that will please him and serve others. But if you're just after it for yourself, then, yeah, we should have a different kind of talk. We are given in the kingdom power and help in reconciling relationships, in establishing justice, setting up systems where people are treated fairly. We have that potential in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God. Let's not live toward anything less. Um, let me sum up by, <laughs> this is something you don't often get to do in church. What we're going to do, we're going to transition, and during the last worship set, um, there will be opportunity for prayer in the back room. Um, if you want to pray about anything, because your takeaway questions are, 
where am I afraid to follow Jesus now? And the other question is, am I using power and ambition properly? So if you have any concerns for that, you want any help, discussion about where you're afraid to follow or whether you're using power and ambitions properly, too much, too little, there will be prayer available in the back room. You're free to, you know, make yourself comfortable here in the sanctuary any way you want. And here's a freedom you don't often get in church. You're welcome to take out your phones and text yourself either those questions or your answers. Where am I afraid to follow Jesus? Am I using or abusing power? And the other thing, you can take your phone out and you can text your mama and tell her you love her. Come on. Um, so we have those, we have very, we have varying opportunities during the worship set, but um, let's not be afraid to do anything short of what the kingdom of God would let us do. Thanks.